Here it is. From deep inside your audio device of choice. Ladies and gentlemen, usually my policy on this program is don't explain. Just move on. But uh, this week I do owe you an explanation. This program for about the last six months has been recorded in advance, unlike its previous practice of being broadcast live, either, well, mainly from New Orleans. In Los Angeles, it's had to be pre-recorded for some time, and now it's pre-recorded both in Los Angeles and in New Orleans. I'm not going to explain why now, but that's just a fact. It's uh, recorded some hours before you hear it, and with a worldwide news story blazing to the top of the headlines everywhere right now. Um, I just didn't think it was um, useful to record anything about that that would um, most likely be updated long before it got to uh, your ears and my ear. So with that, please welcome to some news of Musk Love. Looks like Musk Love. Well, the Associated Press claims that Twitter always struggled with combating misinformation about major news events, but it was still the go-to place to find out what's happening in the world. The current war has underscored how that platform, now transformed into X, has become not only unreliable, but is actively promoting falsehoods. Experts say, uh-oh, that under Elon Musk, the platform has deteriorated to the point that it's not just failing to clamp down on misinformation, but is actually favoring posts from accounts that pay for its blue check subscription service, regardless of who runs them. <laughs> if such posts go viral, their blue checked creators can be eligible for payments from X, assuming X has a checking account. That creates financial incentive to post whatever gets the most reaction, including misinformation. There's a beauty contest for you. Ian Bremmer, a f prominent foreign policy expert, posted on X that the level of disinformation on the current war, quote, being algorithmically pro promoted on the platform is like anything I've ever been exposed to in my career, as a political scientist, unquote. The European Union's digital enforcer wrote to Musk about misinformation and potentially illegal content on X. Tom? Potentially illegal. Potentially illegal. Yeah. In what's shaping up to be one of the first major tests for the EU's new digital rules aimed at cleaning up social media platforms, he, the European Union enforcer, later sent a similar, though toned-down, version of the letter to Mark Zuckerberg of Meta, which owns Facebook and Instagram. Musk's social media site, according to the AP, is awash 
in chaos. Rivals such as TikTok, YouTube, and Facebook are also coping with a flood of unsubstantiated rumors and falsehoods about the conflict. Quote, people are desperate for information and social media context may actively interfere with people's ability to distinguish fact from fiction. Unquote, Gordon Pennycook, an associate professor of psychology at Cornell, he studies misinformation or misstudies it. The liberal advocacy group Media Matters found that in the past week, subscribers to X's premium service, thank you, Elon, shared at least six misleading videos about the war, including out-of-context videos and old ones purporting to be recent. They earned millions of views. TikTok, meanwhile, is almost as bad as X, says Kalina Koltai, a researcher at the investigative collective Bellingcap. More about them some other time. She previously worked at Commuter on uh, Twitter on Community Notes, its crowdsourced fact-checking service. But unlike X, TikTok has never been known as the number one source for real-time info about current events. I think everyone knows to take TikTok with a grain of salt, Coltai said, but on X, quote, you see people actively profiteering off of misinformation because of the incentives they have to spread the content that goes viral. And misinformation tends to go viral, unquote. There are um, people leaving X, exiting X, going over to uh, a new kind of Twitter a clone called Threads, owned by Meta, formerly Facebook. It's gaining traction among users fleeing X, but the company has so far tried to de-emphasize news and politics in favor of more friendly topics. No comment from Meta or X to the AP. But a, po- a post this week from X's safety team said, quote, in the past couple of days, we've seen an increase in daily active users on X in the conflict area. Plus, there have been more than 50 million posts globally focused on the weekend's terrorist attack on Israel by Hamas. As the events continue to unfold rapidly, a cross-company leadership group has assessed this moment as a crisis requiring the highest level of response. Somebody wake Elon. No, they didn't say that. Among the fabrications found online are false claims that a top Israeli commander was kidnapped, a doctored White House memo purporting to show Joe Joe Biden announcing billions in aid for Israel, and old unrelated videos of Russian President Vladimir Putin with inaccurate English captions. Even a clip from a video game was passed on as footage from the conflict. Although the cars look weird. Quote, every time there's some major event and information is at a premium, we see misinformation spread like wildfire, says Pennycook. There is now a very consistent pattern, but every time it happens, there's a sudden surge of concern about misinformation that tends to fade away once the moment passes. He adds, we need tools that help build resistance towards misinformation prior to events such as this, unquote. 
Imperfect as Twitter was, there's no clear replacement for it. This means anyone looking for accurate information online needs to pray. No, exercise vigilance, says the AP. In Europe, major social media platforms are facing stricter scrutiny over the war. Britain's technology secretary summoned X, TikTok, Snapchat, Google, and Meta executives for a meeting this past week to discuss, quote, the proliferation of anti-Semitism and extremely violent content, unquote, following the Hamas attack. She demanded they outline the actions they're taking to quickly remove content that breaches the UK's online safety law or their terms and conditions. European Commissioner Thierry Breton warned in his letter to Musk of penalties for not complying with the EU's new Digital Services Act it puts the biggest online platforms, like your ex, under extra scrutiny and requires them to make it easier for users to flag illegal content and take steps to reduce disinformation or face fines up to 6% of annual global revenue. Musk responded, no, not with a poop emoji. That's so... 2022. No, by touting the platform's approach using crowdsourced fact-checking labels, an apparent reference to community notes, quote, Musk, our policy is that everything is open source and transparent, an approach that I know the EU supports, he wrote on X. Please list the violations you allude to on X so that the public can see them, unquote, Musk, Breton, replied that Musk is well aware of the reports on fake content and glorification of violence. Up to you, Breton said, to demonstrate that you walk the talk. Or vice versa. There's some Musk love for you. And now, ladies and gentlemen, news of the warm. Oh, by the way, hello, welcome to the show. The world is breaching a key warming threshold at a rate that has scientists concerned. Well, at least we got their attention. This from the BBC and their own analysis on about a third of the days this year so far. The average global temperature was at least 1.5 degrees Celsius higher than pre-industrial levels. Staying below that marker for the long term is widely considered crucial to avoid the most damaging impacts of your friend and mine climate change but 2023 is on track to be the hottest year on record and 2024 could be hotter quote it's a sign we're reaching levels we haven't been before unquote Dr. Melissa Lazenby from the University of Sussex this latest finding comes after record September temperatures and a summer of extreme weather events across much of the world. That is to say, much of the world where it was summer this summer. When political leaders gathered in Paris December 2015, they signed an agreement to keep the long-term rise in global temperatures this century well below 2 degrees Celsius rise to make every effort to keep it under 1.5 degrees Celsius. Breaching these Paris thresholds doesn't mean going over them for a day or a week, but instead going beyond the limit across a 20- or 30-year average, 
That warming figure currently sits at around 1.1 to 1.2 degrees Celsius, but the more often 1.5 is breached for individual days, the closer the world gets to breaching this mark in the longer term. The limit has been repeatedly broken recently, typically only for short periods. But short periods add up. Four dozen Antarctic ice shelves have shrunk by at least 30% since 1997. 28 of those have lost more than half of their ice in that time. So reports a new study that survived, sorry, that surveyed these crucial gatekeepers between the frozen continents, massive glaciers, and open ocean. Of Antarctica's 162 ice shelves, 68 show significant shrinkage. Between 1997 and 2021, 29 grew, 62 didn't change, and 3 lost mass, but not in a way scientists can say shows a significant trend. That's a study in Science Advances. Well, maybe it does. That melted ice, which usually uh, pens larger glaciers behind it, then goes into the sea. Scientists worry that climate change triggered melt from Antarctica and Greenland will cause dangerous and significant sea level rise over many decades and centuries. Quote, knowing exactly how and how much ice is being lost from these protective floating shelves is a key step in understanding how Antarctica is evolving, said University of Colorado ice scientist Ted Scambos, who wasn't part of that study and apparently believes in evolution. And, if this one don't get you, nothing will. Global warming is changing the quality and taste of beer. Scientists now warn, this is from the BBC, a new study reveals that the quantity of European hops, which gives beer its attractive bitter taste, is declining. Hotter, longer, and drier summers are predicted to worsen the situation, could lead to beer becoming more expensive. The authors warned growers to adapt their farming techniques. Beer is a staple of European culture, with 8.5 million pints sold in the UK alone, according to the British Beer and Pub Association. Hops, the flower of the hop plant, are the crucial fourth ingredient in the beer brewing process alongside water, yeast, and malt. They're added before the boiling process to add bitterness. It can also be added afterwards to change the overall flavor. This study, which looked at how the average yield of aroma hops changed between 1971 and 2018, found that in some key hop-growing areas there was a drop of nearly 20% in output. The scientists from the Czech Academy of Sciences and Cambridge University put the reduction in crop down to drier conditions, probably due to climate change in recent years. The co-author of the paper says failure to adapt will jeopardize the profitability of hop growing in some areas. The consequence will be lower production and a higher price for brewers. The price of beer has already increased by 13% since the pandemic due to an increase in energy costs driven by inflation and the gas crisis following the invasion of Ukraine. The scientists also found the alpha bitter acids of the hops, 
they influenced the beer flavor, had reduced due to higher and more extreme temperatures. The study predicts that the bitter acids will reduce by up to 30, uh, 31% by 2050. Farmers have been working to adapt their growing practices to improve yields, like moving farms higher up valleys where there's more rainfall, and installing irrig- irrigation systems. But the study authors warn further investment is needed and say it will be necessary to expand the area used to grow hops by about 20% to compensate for further decline. The research has been published in the journal Bearing Up, no, Nature Communications. News of the warm. And now, uh, just a few apologies of the week. We're so sorry. Not as many as you'd think. The Premier of New South Wales, the Australian state is... Home to Sydney, not a guy, a city, apologized to the Jewish community this week as they reeled from the pro-Palestinian protest that included such signs as gas the Jews, already been done, babe, and F the Jews chants. Chris Minns said in a statement, he's the premier of New South Wales, his local government had tried to create a place and a space for Jews to mourn victims of the attacks in Israel, outside of Sydney's famed Opera House, which was lit up in the colors of the Israeli flag on Monday night. But he admitted the exterior of the Opera House was overrun with people who were spewing racial epithets and hatred. The rally also included the burning of Israeli flags and the firing of several flares. I didn't even know they worked there. Quote, I want to apologize to this Jewish community, specifically on behalf of the government and myself as the premier of New South Wales, he said. I really want to ensure that the Jewish community in New South Wales feel they can have full access to this city, can they enjoy its life, that they can be part of its culture, that they can commemorate together during solemn occasions, unquote. The Premier of New South Wales. Many people regret the things they do in college. Not all of them get national media attention. But that has rebounded on to a candidate in a local election in South Carolina more than a decade later. Byron Thomas is a Casey, South Carolina resident and a candidate for the city council next month. Many people trying to research him online. One of the top results may be a news story about his fight to keep a Confederate flag in his dorm room Back in 2011, the story garnered attention from many media outlets, fueled partly by the fact that Thomas is black. At the time, 19-year-old Thomas said he had become interested in the flag during a research project, had come to associate it with his pride in his southern roots. The university asked him to take it out of the dorm room window. He said he had a First Amendment right to display it. He made the case that a black man flying the Confederate flag could even help to soothe racial tensions. Interesting theory. Well, now an older Thomas is at pains to stress his views on the flag have changed. At a candidate forum last week and again in an interview with a local newspaper, he apologized 
Chris Passviews, quote, I just wanted to have the opportunity to sincerely apologize to anyone I brought trauma and hurt to, especially people who look like me, that paved the way for me to be here today. He said, now, quote, the only flag I need to be flying is the American flag. Unquote. Right on. Deadline Juno, Alaska, a, a multi ethnic, multinational church in the Presbyterian department, was uh, shut down by the national church some time ago, 1962. This week, the family of the founder, Walter Sobolev, were sitting in um, a new church, heard an apology from Presbyterian leadership. Church leaders acknowledged and apologized for their earlier actions in a service hosted by the current form of the congregation that displaced Sobolev's own so many decades ago. Church leaders representing the General Assembly of the Presbyterian Church of the U.S. and the Presbyterian Mission Agency flew up from the lower 48 to participate in the event. It says it's just one of more than a dozen steps called for by the church leadership going towards reconciliation. They are outlined in an overture. No, a type of ecclesiastical recommendation that was approved by the church's office of the General Assembly. Quote, The forced closure of this thriving multi-ethnic intercultural church was an egregious act of spiritual abuse committed in alignment with the prevailing white racist treatment of Alaska Natives statewide and of Native Americans nationwide. The overture's introduction stated, To date, the full extent of the damage inflicted on indigenous communities has yet to be repaired by Presbyterians. The church must acknowledge its errors and recognize the Alaska Native and Native American values it trampled. One step in this process is to offer apology and reparations for the forced closure of Memorial Presbyterian Church. Unquote. One of the apologists said Sobolev's service to the Tlingit community and the Presbyterian Church was marked with, quote, distinction, creativity, energy, and uncommon grace, unquote, and admitted the church committed spiritual abuse when it left the congregation with no option but to close. The apologies of the week, ladies and gentlemen. Copyrighted feature of this broadcast. Couple doses of smartness. The genetic testing company 23andMe confirmed this week that data from a subset of its users has been compromised. The company said its systems were not breached and attackers gathered the data by guessing the login credentials of a group of users and then scraping more people's info from a feature known as DNA relatives. Users opting into sharing their information through DNA relatives for others to see made it possible. 
Hackers posted an initial data sample on the platform Breach Forums earlier this week, claiming it contained about one million data points exclusively about Ashkenazi Jews. There also seem to be hundreds of thousands of users of Chinese descent impacted by the leak. On Wednesday, the actor, the bad actor, I assume, began selling what it claims are 23andMe profiles for between $1 and $10 per account, depending on the scale of the purchase. The data includes things like a display name, sex, birth, year, and some details about genetic ancestry results, like that someone is, say, of, quote, broadly European, unquote, or, quote, broadly Arabian, unquote, descent. It may also include some more specific geographic ancestry information. The information does not appear to include actual raw genetic data. Company emphasized in a statement it does not see evidence that its systems have been breached. It also encouraged users to use strong, unique passwords and enable two-factor authentication to keep attackers from compromising their individual accounts using login credentials exposed in other data breaches. And, even smarter, artificial intelligence, or AI, about which we'll speak more in a moment, may promise several benefits for productivity. One industry expert this week warns that widespread usage of the technology may outpace power demands of some countries. In a commentary in the journal Joule, as in, you know, electric Joule, Alex DeVries, PhD candidate at the university in Amsterdam and founder of Dichotomist, a research company that explores the unintended consequences of digital trends, says, quote, looking at the growing demand for AI service, it's very likely that energy consumption related to AI will significantly increase in the coming years. The most rapid expansion, of course, generative AI, tool that allows users to generate new text, images, videos, and other data using the simplest demands, OpenAI's DALL-E and ChatGPT are leading examples. Many have expressed concerns about plagiarism, but that hasn't deterred companies like Alphabet, Microsoft, and Facebook from quickly developing their own AI platforms. But the technology's quick expansion is problematic, Alex DeVries says because of its underlying processes potentially costly to the environment. Tools like ChatGPT and DALI use natural language processing, have an initial training phase and an interference phase, both expending large amounts of energy due to the vast amount of data they require for specific outputs. During the training phase, an AI model is fed large data sets to adjust its initial parameters to align a predicted output with a target output. For large language models, like ChatGPT, DeVries says, this process allows an AI model to predict specific words or sentences based on context guiding its behavior. But training alone consumes a lot of energy. DeVries notes how some large language models use anywhere from 324 to 1287 
megawatt hours of electricity during that stage, making the um, technology processes more efficient, energy efficient and accessible can be that we just allow more people to use more applications of it, says DeVries. One example comes from Google, which is currently incorporating generative AI in its email service and search engine. Given that the search engine already processes 9 billion searches a day, DeVries estimates that utilizing AI would require roughly 29 terawatt hours of electricity per year, a 60% increase from the company's energy consumption a couple years ago. The worst-case scenario suggests Google's AI alone could consume as much electricity as a country like Ireland, DeVries writes. Maybe we have to stockpile some Guinness for AI servers. No, the high cost and short supply of AI servers right now will keep the odds of this scenario of an energy problem low for now. However, AI server production is expected to grow and raise AI-related electricity consumption by 85 to 134 terawatt hours annually within the next three years. Adding to this worries by increasing AI efficiency, developers may be able to repurpose certain computer processing chips for AI, further increasing energy consumption. To uh, enhance transparency on AI's environmental impacts, DeVries writes that regulators may want to consider introducing disclosure requirements. He also notes, developers could think critically about whether certain applications would truly benefit from AI, as opposed to everybody just slapping some on because it's the new hip thing. Quote, the potential growth highlights that we need to be very mindful about what we use AI for. It's energy intensive, so we don't want to put it in all kinds of things where we don't actually need it, says DeVries. And on the subject of artificial intelligence, ladies and gentlemen, something a little bit different on this week's program. Last Sunday, the uh, CBS TV program 60 Minutes featured an interview fairly lengthy interview with uh, Dr. Jeffrey Hinton, a a pioneer in the world of artificial intelligence. Um, I got in touch with a friend of mine who is um, also active in the field of artificial intelligence. He's author, serial entrepreneur, cognitive scientist, and best-selling author, Dr. Gary Marcus, to ask him what his opinion was of the interview with Dr. Hinton. He... uh, sent me his thoughts, and I thought, why not put them together with Dr. Hinton's thoughts? So you can hear, rather than one side of the story, both. So it's as if Gary Marcus sat in on the 60 Minutes interview, hosted by Scott Pelley. Whether you think artificial intelligence will save the world or end it, you have Jeffrey Hinton to thank. Hinton has been called the godfather of AI, a British computer scientist whose controversial ideas help make advanced artificial intelligence possible and so change the world. Hinton believes that AI will do enormous good, but tonight he has a warning. 
He says that AI systems may be more intelligent than we know, and there's a chance the machines could take over, which made us ask the question. Does humanity know what it's doing? No. I tend to agree. When it comes to AI in particular, we're getting way ahead of our skis, rushing forward a technology we don't fully understand. For all the differences Jeff and I have had over the years, I salute you for speaking out. I think we're moving into a period when, for the first time ever, we may have things more intelligent than us. You believe they can understand? Yes. You believe they are intelligent? Yes. As it happens, I sharply disagree with all three of the points Jeff just made. To be sure, it's all partly definitional. But I don't think we're all that close to machines that are more intelligent than us. I don't think they really understand the things they say, and I don't think they're intelligent in the sense of being able to adaptively and flexibly reason about things they haven't encountered before in a reliable way. What Jeff has left out is any reference to all of the colossally stupid and ungrounded things generative AI systems do routinely, like fabricating the other night, Liz Cheney had replaced Kevin McCarthy, a speaker, by 220 to 215 vote that never actually happened, or learning that Tom Cruise is the son of Mary Pfeiffer and yet not being able to infer that Mary Pfeiffer is Tom Cruise's mother, or claiming that two pounds of feathers weigh less than one pound bricks. Jeff himself wrote a classic paper about trying to get neural networks to infer family relationships almost 40 years ago. It's embarrassing to see these systems still struggle on such basic problems. Since they can't reliably solve them, I don't think we should attribute understanding to them, at least not in any remotely deep sense of the word understanding. Emily Bender and Timnit Gebru have called these systems, quote, stochastic parrots, which in my view is a little unkind to the parrots, but also vividly captures something real. A lot of what we're seeing now is a kind of unreliable mimicry. I really wish you could have addressed both the question of mimicry and of reliability. Maybe next time? I don't see how you can call an agent with such a loose grip on reality all that intelligent, nor how you can simply ignore the role of mimicry in all this. You believe these systems have experiences of their own and can make decisions based on those experiences? In the same sense as people do, yes. You can't really mean this, do you? Do you think that large language models feel pain or joy? When Google's large language model Lambda said that it, quote, enjoyed spending time with friends and family, those were just empty words. It didn't actually have friends or family that it spent time with. It just mimicked words that humans have said in similar context without ever having experienced the same thing. Large language models may have experiences in some sense, but it's a bridge too far to say that those experiences are the, quote, same as those of people. Are they conscious? I think they probably don't have much self-awareness at present. So in that sense, I don't think they're conscious. But wait a minute. You just said they have experiences literally in the same sense as people, and now you don't think they're conscious? How can they have experience in the same sense as people if they're not conscious? Of course, I don't think these machines are conscious either. I've written about that. But you do seem to have contradicted yourself. Will they have self-awareness? Consciousness? Oh, yes. I yes. Think, oh, yes. What makes you so sure? How are you defining consciousness? When you say they, do you mean the same kinds of systems as we're building now will somehow achieve consciousness? Or are you imagining that other kinds of AI, perhaps not yet discovered, might? It'd be great if you could clarify what you mean by this. Hinton doesn't seem to hear my questions and doesn't respond. Yes. Oh, yes, I think they will in time. 
How much time? What kinds of systems? Again, no answers. And so human beings will be the second most intelligent beings on the planet. Yeah. Jeffrey Hinton told us the artificial intelligence he set in motion was an accident born of a failure. In the 1970s at the University of Edinburgh, he dreamed of simulating a neural network on a computer simply as a tool for what he was really studying, the human brain. But back then, almost no one thought software could mimic the brain. His Ph.D. advisor told him to drop it before it ruined his career. Hinton says he failed to figure out the human mind, but the long pursuit led to an artificial version. It took much, much longer than I expected. It took like 50 years before it worked well. But in the end, it did work well. <laughs> quote, work well, close quote, remains a tangentious claim. They still cannot be trusted, make random mistakes, have no basis in factuality. They approximate intelligence when what they need to say resembles something in a database of text written by humans. But they still have enough problems that we don't yet have driverless cars we can trust. And many companies are looking at generative AI saying, nice try, but it's not sound enough yet. I think it's fair to say that generative AI works better than most people expected, but to simply ignore their serious issues and reliability is one-sided and misrepresents reality. At what point did you realize that you were right about neural networks and most everyone else was wrong? I always thought I was right. <laughs> Actually, a lot of us still think you're declaring victory prematurely. It's not just me either. For example, you should really check out MacArthur Award winner Yejin Choi's recent TED Talk. She concludes that we still have a long way to go, saying, for example, that, quote, so my position is that giving true common sense to AI is still a moonshot. I do wish this interview could have at least acknowledged that there's another side of the argument. You think these AI systems are better at learning than the human mind? I think they may be, yes. And at present, they're quite a lot smaller. So even the biggest chatbots only have about a trillion connections in them. The human brain has about 100 trillion, and yet, in the trillion connections in a chatbot, it knows far more than you do in your 100 trillion connections, which suggests it's got a much better way of getting knowledge into those connections. The connections in chatbots are very different from the connections in the brain. It's a mistake to compare them directly in this way. For example, in human brains, the type of neuron being connected matters, and there are more than a thousand different types of neurons in the brain, but none of that is captured by the current batch of robots. And we can't really compare human knowledge and the stuff chatbots are doing. I know, for example, that Elon Musk is still alive, but sometimes a chatbot will say he died in a car crash. I know that if Tom Cruise's mother is Mary Pfeiffer, Tom Cruise has to be Mary's son. I know that I don't yet have a pet chicken named Henrietta, the chatbot said last week with perfect confidence and no sources that I did. As they sometimes say in the military, frequently wrong, never in doubt. There's some information there, but whatever's there is often both patchy and problematic. I have a very good idea of sort of roughly what it's doing. But as soon as it gets really complicated, we don't actually know what's going on any more than we know what's going on in your brain. What do you mean we don't know exactly how it works? It was designed by people. No, it wasn't. What we did was we designed the learning algorithm. Agreed. It's a bit like designing the principle of evolution. But when this learning algorithm then interacts with data, it produces complicated neural networks that are good at doing things, 
but we don't really understand exactly how they do those things. Fully agree with Jeff here. I would only add that this is a serious problem for many reasons. It makes current AI hard to debug. Nobody knows, for example, how to ground them in facts. And it makes them difficult to predict, which means unlike calculators or spreadsheets, we don't really know what's going to happen when we ask them a question. This makes engineering with them exceptionally hard. It's one reason why some companies have been cautious about using these systems. What are the implications of these systems autonomously writing their own computer code and executing their own computer code? That's a serious worry, right? So one of the ways in which these systems might escape control is by writing their own computer code to modify themselves. And that's something we need to seriously worry about. Agree again, but this problem is twofold. They might escape control because they're smarter than us, but also simply because they don't really know what it is that they're doing. Just like we can't guarantee they won't make stuff up, we don't know how to guarantee that they won't write flawed code. We are giving way too much authority to machines that we can't control. Put me too down in the column people who are seriously worried about letting poorly understood neural networks write computer code. What do you say to someone who might argue if the systems become malevolent, just turn them off? They will be able to manipulate people, right? And these will be very good at convincing people because they'll have learned from all the novels that were ever written, all the books by Machiavelli, all the political connivances. They'll know all that stuff. They'll know how to do it. Jeff's totally right about this. Of course, current systems don't really understand Machiavelli, but they don't have to if they parrot the right bits of text. We've already seen cases where machines have manipulated people, and we'll see a lot more as time goes by. This is one of the reasons laws should have been written to make machines disclose the fact that they are machines. Some of his research led to chatbots like Google's Bard, which we met last spring. We asked Bard to write a story from six words. For sale, baby shoes, never worn. Holy cow. The shoes were a gift from my wife, but we never had a baby. Bard created a deeply human tale of a man whose wife could not conceive and a stranger who accepted the shoes to heal the pain after her miscarriage. I am rarely speechless. I don't know what to make of this. Holy cow indeed, but is I who's speechless. Baby Shoes Never Worn is a very old story, sometimes attributed to Hemingway, with about 21 million Google hits. There's an entire Wikipedia entry for it, as perhaps the best-known example of a very short fiction. I'm floored that you didn't bother to check if the story was original. Your best example of spectacular machine invention is, in fact, a perfect example of the kind of parroting and theft of intellectual property that is characteristic of large language models. Chatbots are said to be language models that just predict the next most likely word based on probability. You'll hear people saying things like, they're just doing autocomplete, they're just trying to predict the next word, and they're just using statistics. I'm in fact one of those people. Well, it's true they're just trying to predict the next word, but if you think about it, to predict the next word, you have to understand the sentences. False. If you have a large enough database, you can do a half-decent job just by looking up the most similar sentence in that database and saying what was said in that context. Large language models are trained, as far as we know, on pretty much the entire Internet. That gives them enormous databases to train on. It means that the feed of prediction doesn't necessarily tell you anything about understanding. 
If I had a big enough database of ancient Greek, I could do the same, but that wouldn't mean I understand Greek. To be fair, large language models aren't just looking things up, but the idea that a good prediction of the next word necessarily implies understanding is fallacious. So the idea they're just predicting the next word so they're not intelligent is crazy. Let's try this again. You can predict a next word to a reasonable degree without being intelligent, if you have enough data. But the reason I don't think systems are intelligent isn't just because these systems are next word predictors, which they are, but also because, for example, they are utterly incapable of fact-checking what they say, even against their own databases, and because in careful tests over and over, they make silly errors over and over again. You have to be really intelligent to predict the next word really accurately. They aren't always accurate. We both know that. Two kilograms of feathers don't weigh less than one kilogram of bricks. They just don't. To prove it, Hinton showed us a test he devised for ChatGPT4, the chatbot from a company called OpenAI. Hinton's test was a riddle about house painting. An answer would demand reasoning and planning. This is what he typed into ChatGPT4. The rooms in my house are painted white or blue or yellow, and yellow paint fades to white within a year. In two years' time, I'd like all the rooms to be white. What should I do? The answer began in one second. GPT-4 advised the rooms painted in blue need to be repainted. The rooms painted in yellow don't need to be repainted because they would fade to white before the deadline. And... Oh. I didn't even think of that. It warned, if you paint the yellow rooms white, there's a risk the color might be off when the yellow fades. Besides, it advised, you'd be wasting resources, painting rooms that were going to fade to white anyway. You believe that chat GPT-4 understands? I believe it definitely understands. Hey guys, what about the many cases that Yejin Choi and Ernie Davis and Melanie Mitchell and Subarau Kambahapahati and many others have shown where these systems failed? Are you ever going to mention them? More silence. And in five years' time? I think in five years' time it may well be able to reason better than us. Come on. In 2016, you said that it was, quote, quite obvious that we should stop training radiologists, close quote, because deep learning was getting so good. How many radiologists have been replaced by machines seven years later? Zero. So an obvious area where there's huge benefits is healthcare. AI is already comparable with radiologists at understanding what's going on in medical images. Scott, this is your chance. Come on, hold them to account. Well, okay. We st so far, we still get best results by combining machine vision with human understanding. I don't really think machines get the big picture that human radiologists do. They are better on vision than understanding the case files and notes and so on. It's going to be very good at designing drugs. Another promise. No proof yet. It is designing drugs. So that's an area where it's almost entirely going to do good. I like that area. I like that area too. But as far as I know, from AI, we still just have what we call candidate drugs, nothing yet proven to work. So some caution is advised. I agree with Jeff that eventually AI will have a big impact on drug design. Perhaps with current techniques, perhaps not. We're going to have to see. The risks are what? Well, the risks are having a whole class of people who are unemployed and not valued much because what they, what they used to do is now done by machines. Other immediate risks he worries about include fake news, 
unintended bias in employment and policing, and autonomous battlefield robots. 100% agree, and I'd add cybercrime, and emphasize that wholesale automated fake news will be used both to manipulate markets and elections and might well undermine democracy. What is a path forward that ensures safety? I don't know. I, d I can't see a path that guarantees safety. I can't either. There's a lot we can do to help, but nothing I can see either to absolutely guarantee safety. Rushing ahead is creating risk. That we're entering a period of great uncertainty where we're dealing with things we've never dealt with before. And normally the first time you deal with something totally novel, you get it wrong. And we can't afford to get it wrong with these things. Absolutely, 100% agree. Can't afford to get it wrong, why? Well, because they might take over. Take over from humanity? Yes, that's a possibility. Why would they I'm not saying to? it will happen. If we could stop them ever wanting to, that would be great. But it's not clear we can stop them ever wanting to. I'm much more worried about bad actors deliberately misusing AI than machines deliberately wanting to take over. But Jeff's right that we can't fully rule it out either. And that's really sobering. Jeffrey Hinton told us he has no regrets because of AI's potential for good. But he says now is the moment to run experiments to understand AI, for governments to impose regulations, and for a world treaty to ban the use of military robots. He reminded us of Robert Oppenheimer, who, after inventing the atomic bomb, campaigned against the hydrogen bomb, a man who changed the world and found the world beyond his control. It may be we look back and see this as a kind of turning point when humanity had to make the decision about whether to develop these things further and what to do to protect themselves if they did. Um, I don't know. I think my main message is there's enormous uncertainty about what's going to happen next. These things do understand, and because they understand, we need to think hard about what's going to happen next, and we just don't know. Fully agree with most, but not quite all of that. Jeff and I can disagree all day, as we have for the last 30 years, about how smart current AI is and what, if anything, they understand. But we are in complete agreement that we are at a turning point with enormous uncertainty, and that we need to make the right choices now. Dr. Jeffrey Hinton from 60 Minutes and uh, Dr. Gary Marcus from his own little studio. Having the, the show debate. And now. News of the Olympic Movement. Produced by Jim Ebersol III. On Monday this week, Los Angeles 2028 proposed cricket, along with baseball, softball, flag football, lacrosse, and squash for inclusion at the Olympics. Men's and women's tournaments in cricket are said to be played under the 2020 format, returning to the games for the first time since its only previous appearance in 1900, when the Dawn and Somerset Wanderers, representing Britain, beat the French Athletic Club Union in a one-off match. 
The approval of the additional sports is expected to be approved by the IOC on today or tomorrow or Tuesday, symbolically being held in Mumbai in India, that uh, IOC session. India is where cricket is the most popular sport, and the country is staging the ongoing Men's Cricket World Cup. Former L.A. Mayor Eric Garcetti told India Today that approval of cricket for Los Angeles in 2028 surpassed his expectations. Quote, I've been working very hard for a number of years, saying we have cricket, this huge sport with hundreds of millions of fans around the world, and for some reason it's not been in the Olympics for over 100 years, he said. I worked very closely with the chair of the LA 28 Olympics, my good friend Casey Wasserman, and we both decided a few years ago, let's see if we can get cricket in the games. I never dreamed I'd be the ambassador in India, the capital of cricket in the world, when this announcement was going to happen here during an IOC meeting, unquote Garcetti. The ambassador said when discussing the inclusion of cricket, LA 2028 organizers believed it would appeal to India and beyond. It's beginning to catch with folks in the U.S. who are traditionally not cricket fans. And then we've got millions of cricket fans already in America, said Garcetti. We just thought this is a gift to India, a gift to the world to include cricket in the Olympics finally. And I know it's going to get the medal count up for India too. Unquote. He claimed cricket's return to the Olympics was proof of its global appeal. Quote, I'm confident that somebody investing in cricket in America right now is going to see it take off. This is a recognition that cricket is a global sport, he said. And of course, he wants baseball back in and softball, flag football, and lacrosse. Can dodgeball be far behind? A question that answers itself. When you realize it's still a movement. That is to say, the Olympics. And we all need one. Every day!
Ladies and gentlemen, that concludes this week's edition of the show. Back next week, same time on the same station, or at the time of your choosing on the audio device of your choice. And it would be uh, just like peace breaking out. If you'd agree to join with me then, would you? Alrighty, thank you very much, uh-huh. The tip of the show chapeau to the San Diego desk, to the Hawaii desk, to Pam Halstead and to Thomas Walsh at WWNO New Orleans, all for help with today's broadcast. The email address for this program, your chance to get Cars I Talk t-shirts, and the playlist of the music you hear on this program, all at harryshearer.com. And a lot more there for you to read, watch, and turn off. The show comes to you from Century of Progress Productions and originates through the facilities of WWNO New Orleans, flagship station of the Change is Easy radio network. So long from New Orleans.